There's no such thing as like women's writing or writing for women. I was polite, but I just went for it when so many people were just saying no. I had the luxury of writing what I cared about the most for a long time. I want to publish like amazing, brilliant, urgent, strange, innovative fiction. Think about every scene ending with a bitch slap. I'm Lex Alptrom. And I'm Lee Stein. And this is The Bindercast, a conversation series featuring our favorite women and gender nonconforming writers. This week, we are talking about the past and present of feminism, which is a topic that Lee and I both love to talk about. You mean there's a past for feminism? Right? It's not just what we're doing now. I mean, it's funny because, you know, I grew up like reading lots of like books about feminist heroes for women, but because a lot of them were focused on America specifically, I had this whole impression of feminism as a relatively recent thing, like this idea that, oh, you know, it started with the suffragettes or I guess there was Abigail Adams and there was Harriet Tubman. But like Amer- Americans invented the idea that women should have equal rights. Right. Like – And, you know, it's one of those things you just don't think about when you're a kid. You're like, oh, this is a thing and this is how it works. And obviously that's not how it happened, which is one of the reasons why I loved the guest we got this week. This week we're talking to Danielle Dutton, who's the founder of a small press called Dorothy Project and the author of the books Attempts at a Life and Sprawl. Her newest book, out now from Catapult, is called Margaret the First. It's a compact, lyrical novel about the historical figure Margaret of Cavendish, who is the coolest and weirdest proto-feminist writer you've maybe never heard of before. We spoke to Danielle by phone at her home in St. Louis. First, I asked her to introduce Margaret's work to readers who may not know who she is. She wrote poetry, plays, um, philosophy, and this really wonderful utopia called A Description of a New World called The Blazing World. And she was sort of a tabloid celebrity during her lifetime, and she was called Mad Madge because it was sort of both a combination of her personality, which was quite eccentric, and then the fact that she even wrote at all, which was not remotely something that women did in the way that she did. Um, And she was the first woman ever invited to the Royal Society of London, and then the last for 200 years after that. I had the first idea to write a book that had Margaret Cavendish as a character in it, like a little over 10 years ago. And then, um, but the the book was not going to be just about Margaret. And I had all these other ideas. I, I was really into 17th century garden design and really into Samuel Pepys and all of these strange experiments and inventions that the men of the Royal Society were coming up with. And it was going to be about all of these things sort of equally somehow in my mind. And then over a few years, I was doing a lot of the initial re- I was writing, but it was sort of, I was writing a lot of notes, and I was writing, and I was reading things, and then over a few years, I started realizing at some point that I was mostly writing about her, even though I was reading all of this other stuff, and I mean, it took me a while to realize that the book really just wanted to be about Margaret, and all of this other stuff would inform that story about Margaret. I noticed there was a real contemporary feeling to the novel, even though it's set in the past. For example, there's this moment where Margaret's at a party listening to these guys talking about the same stuff they were talking about seven years ago, and it just felt so familiar to me. I've so been at that party. I really wanted to try to keep the book as true to as I could to what it would be like to live in the 17th century, but um, there was a point in those six 
to 10 years when I realized I had to let myself into Margaret if I was going to really write a book that was like a live feeling, you know, because for a while it was like I was so rigorously trying to keep it to what I could factually know about her that um, she felt very far away from me. And so there was this process of having to like write myself into it in certain ways or like imagine myself into her in a different way than I had been doing. And so a lot of my own feelings and experiences was sort of bled into it. Surely I've spent many parties and many moments in my life feeling like the girl um, or being made to feel like that and feeling kind of angry and repressed or something about it. And certainly those feelings worked their way into the book. It was like impossible for them not to as I was reading the things about like how her life worked, you know. She sat at those parties in the corner listening and not talking. And then she wrote a book and everyone was like, she didn't write that book. You know, I mean, it's just like it was maddening. So I had to imagine myself into how she would have felt doing all of that. The novel is a fascinating look into gender norms at the time. And it's easy to see why Margaret was so uncategorizable to her contemporaries. On the one hand, she has to kind of uh, like... I don't know, I think you referenced this a couple times, but like the idea of these powerful women that they're channeling masculinity in order to access power. But on the other hand, she's often feeling like she's a child because she can't, she doesn't, um, she's unable to conceive a child of her own. So she's kind of like a child for her whole life. So it's like, there's no role for women without a child. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. I mean, certainly the culture was so infantilizing towards women in general. Um, There were these I don't know what to call them. They're like how-to-live books, like early versions of self-help books, you know, um, that would talk about how a learned lady is like a tamed fox, and they both turn sort of cunning and evil, and you can't trust them. And so she would have grown up with that all around her all the time, this idea that if if a lady learns things, she becomes sort of like reprehensible. I mean, imagine trying to write books with having grown up being told that your whole life, you know. And interestingly, like, I I should say, like, that was actually something that came about during the reign of James I. Prior to that, like, women had a little more leeway, and it wasn't as unusual for women to be somewhat educated sometimes, like during, say, Queen Elizabeth's reign. Um, But then it's sort of like there was this regression, and she grew up during that time. I love the part of the novel where she goes to the theater because her husband has written a play in secret mm-hmm. and she goes in this outrageous outfit that I almost can't believe is real. <laughs> I know. I couldn't. It was a really hard thing for me to understand, too. Like over the many years of working on the book and coming to know Margaret, I still was often thinking, like, why would you do this? Because she's um, like in just... her 30s, right? And she goes bare breasted to the theater. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. And so everyone, all the gossip columnists are writing about it and they think that that she wrote the play. Yeah, right. She starts to get credit for his work. Um, So at the beginning of her career, the critics are constantly saying, like, there's no way she wrote these books. Like, she stole them from some man, or her husband wrote them, and it's some weird joke between them. Um, And so he was constantly being given credit for her work. And then towards the end of her career, people often thought that she had written things that he'd written, from songs that, that were sung at parties at their house to plays. That, um, that he published, yeah. People will say her ideas seem crazy. Like, for example, she thought microscopes were just, like, 
distorting nature. And she was like, get rid of them. They made her really uncomfortable. And so, okay, let's say she was wrong, like that microscopes have proven to be quite valuable, you know. Fair enough. But, like, they were all doing crazy shit. I mean, like, Newton, brilliant man, was also, like, doing alchemy. You know, like, magic and science hadn't, like, fully split yet. And there was just all this wonder in it. And it was sort of the beginning of science as a separate discourse, and it was just full of possibility. They were asking, like, every question they could ask. They were still talking about witches. Um, Could only women be witches? Could witches fly? And so she asks all these wacky questions, too, like, do fishes in the river miss the salt of the sea is one of the things she asks at one point. But that was no more wonderful or silly than the questions that were being asked all around her by by Thomas Hobbes and Isaac Newton and all of these other men. Yeah, it's like she was like an equal member of the club, but the club was so confused about a woman being a member of it. Yeah, it's sad because she had no formal education and they all did. Um, And she didn't have the opportunity. Like, the Royal Society was exactly the kind of thing she needed. I mean, the men came together and some of their ideas were brilliant and some of them were stupid. And they talked about them with each other and helped each other, you know, and sort of workshopped their ideas. And she had no no one to do that with. She could talk to her husband, of course, but then mostly she wrote things down. She just wrote them all down. And if you consider that, I mean, she did remarkably well, you know. She had so many fewer opportunities to even know what the discourse of the day was, really. Yeah, and at the same time, I mean, I think being married to who she was married to gave her access to some of these conversations. Right. She definitely had a remarkable degree of privilege, even among the women of the day, you know. Um, Her marriage was a really happy one from all accounts, and they were quite in love, and her husband was unbelievably supportive of her. I mean, we we wouldn't have Margaret's writings, I don't think, if she hadn't married William Cavendish. Um, it was very unusual for a husband to support. I mean, there are no other there are no other marriages quite like this at that time. Um, there are no other women writing things like this, and I don't think it would have worked if she hadn't been married to him and then been around these conversations and these salons, but then also that he was so supportive of her work. I mean, he encouraged it. You know, he would write, like, prefaces to her books and stuff. And one thing I was thinking about after I finished the book, I, w- I was talking to my husband, who's also extremely supportive um, and helpful, and we were trying to remember, like, literary marriages, either in books or out, that are, like, really good, you know? Because um, you can think right off the top of your head of, like, a bunch of horrible marriages in books. Um, and we were trying to remember, we were trying to come up with marriages that are actually, like, interesting and dynamic and um, and supportive and loving, and it was really hard to do. That's interesting. Maybe we need to have a, like, literary marriages through history episode. <laughs> yeah, right. I asked Danielle what lessons she took away from going so deep into Margaret's story. Something I took from her was how bold she was. Um, so she was awkward and shy, and I relate to both of those things, but she did not let that stop her from insisting that people listen to her, which sometimes made her seem shrill or ridiculous to others, but she was doing everything she could think of to do to be taken seriously and to matter. And she was not worried about bugging people. Or if she was worried about it, she said, oh, well, you know, and she did it anyway. Um, She was just so eager to be part of the conversation And I do think about that, you know, like now when I'm, um, because I just can have this impulse to like fade to the background a lot. And so I try to remember Margaret and think like, it's okay to want people to read your book. You know, that doesn't mean you're like a giant jerk or something. Um, It's normal. Like that's good. That's a good impulse. 
I'm so glad we had Danielle as a guest because we're so similar in that we saw a need in the community and we really wanted to take action to fulfill it, whether that was starting BinderCon to have conferences for women writers or whether that was starting a small press that would really focus on women writers as Danielle did. Speaking of BinderCon, if people want to go to New York BinderCon October 29th and 30th, you can get your tickets at shop.bindercon.com. Thanks, Lex. So Danielle's mission is called Dorothy Project, and she named it after her great aunt Dorothy, who was always giving her beautiful books. I think she was like a spinster aunt, right? She was like a cool spinster aunt. Yeah. And she was always giving Danielle these beautiful, special collectible books. And so that's what the project is named after. And I'll let Danielle tell us more about the project. So to start, Dorothy has always been, like our website says, um, we publish mostly women. So we've always been open to publishing books by men, and we have published one. But what I wanted to do was I wanted to encourage women to submit, because this was actually, I think, even before the first Vita count and that whole conversation got started. Um, But I had been working at Dalkey Archive Press for four years. And I saw the submission numbers, like, or the rates, you know, I could see it coming over, you know, over the transom. And um, women actually submitted and were submitted by agents at, like, a drastically fewer numbers than men. And so I just started, and I started thinking about myself and some of my friends, and I'm, I am, like, how much more um, ambitious or aggressive in an overt way my male writer friends seemed than most of my, not all, but, you know, this, it seemed like a trend. Um, and I myself could be quite shy about submitting. And so I thought, I'm going to just try to make a space where women feel especially encouraged to submit their work. And it's not that I'm only interested in work by women, but I want to make sure women feel encouraged. And so that's how the mostly women thing came about. Um, and and interestingly, in the first year or so, most of my submissions were from men. Um, what? What? Yeah. yeah, like almost, I would say like 90%. And there, there weren't that many in the first year. You know, we we're just getting going. But still, most of them were from men. And now um, I would say men make up like 5% of the submissions we get. But I thought that was fascinating, like even making it like an overtly feminist space. I mean, I don't want men to feel discouraged. Like if I totally, totally loved a book that came in that was by a man, I would be into that. But so far, the books I've been really excited about have been written by women. Why don't women submit work as much as men do? This question drives me crazy, and I've tried to solve it through my work with BinderCon. I asked Danielle why she thinks there's such a difference. I really don't know why that is. I mean, I think it's something to do with how we're raised or have been. I don't know. I can say of myself that I have this feeling when I'm submitting that I'm bugging people. Um, And, like, I try to shush that voice inside myself, but I can still hear it when I do something, like when I query someone or ask someone for something. I have had male friends. I probably have had female friends who are really bold about it, too, but they've never brought it up and talked to me about it, whereas I've had male friends, like, really brag about their, you know, this is early in my career. You know when you're young and everyone's submitting to magazines all the time, or like, fresh out of your MFA or something, and um, I had male friends who had these whole elaborate systems for how they were managing their numerous submissions, you know, and, um, and it was just so interesting to me. And so I, I just remembered that. And then when all of those Vita numbers came out and this whole conversation got started, I, I just found that really interesting. When I started Dorothy, though, it was more instinctual than that. I just felt like, okay, so at Dalkey, I see, like, almost no women submitting. 
why? And I just sort of thought maybe they don't feel welcome because the list, the donkey list, as amazing as it is, does lean, it skews heavily male. And so I thought, you know, I'm particularly interested in like, like I love Dalkey's List. I'm interested in avant-garde literature. And so I wanted to like have a press that published really innovative and strange and interesting books. But I wanted women to feel encouraged to submit. So I just decided, well, if I make it clearer that I want mostly women, like maybe fewer men will submit and maybe more women will. And it was just like a hunch. Like I was saying, at first it didn't work. And I was like, this isn't even working. But then over time, once people actually started hearing about the press, I think then women were like, oh, cool, I do want to submit there. And so then it, it reversed, and it, it's now it's mostly women. I also feel really frustrated by the idea of women writers or women's writing. Like, I don't think there's a thing like that. And I don't like when people use those terms. I want to publish, like, amazing, brilliant, urgent, strange, innovative fiction and there's plenty of it being written by men and women, but I just want to I want to shed light on the very fact that there's no such thing as like women's writing or writing for women that's somehow like just purely domestic or small. Or to me, that's like what the the women of Dorothy are like totally diverse, and their books are brilliant. You know, it doesn't matter that they're women, except that I want to make women feel really encouraged to apply or submit their work. But then there's this other thing, which is that um, I had this experience where I heard this really intelligent man say once in front of me, not to me, but in front of me, like at a table of people that he really liked this book he was reading because like the first 20 or 30 pages, he couldn't tell it was by a a woman. And I was so offended, (laughs) like really furious about that. And, um, that was part of the impulse, too. That was that happened not, you know, I mean, in the period before I started Dorothy. And I just, I don't know, I was like, I was angry about that. Danielle and I both work to advocate for more women's writing. But at the same time, we don't want to be singled out just for gender as quote-unquote women writers instead of just writers. It's a tricky dance. And I can constantly see it from a different angle, like Laura Riding Jackson, who I love, um, refused to be published in anthologies of women's writing because she didn't think women should be separated out. And I, I respect that, and, and I've thought about that with Dorothy, um, but at the same time, I still feel like there is this need, um, if not to publish women separately, at least to certainly be encouraging women. And I also feel like, I don't know, the need is still there. Like, I still, sometimes I'll you know, go Google something and try to find something and come upon a list published just last year of like the 23 books about blood that you have to read. And it's all men. And I still, I can't believe it. And so I, it still obviously needs to be happening. Right. Like it's clear the work is not yet done. Yeah, it's not done. So, I mean, maybe in 20 years I'll still be doing Dorothy and it'll be just, you know, equally men and women because I won't feel like I need to do this anymore. But right now I do feel like I need to do what I do, and what I'm doing specifically is trying to bring like innovative, brilliant women writers to notice. One of the reasons I was so excited to talk to Danielle is so I could hear the story of publishing Nell Zink. I love the story of Nell Zink. If you haven't read the New Yorker profile, go read it immediately after you finish this episode. Basically, she was this unpublished, middle-aged woman living in Germany who started an email friendship with Jonathan Franzen about birdwatching because they are both weirdos. And Franzen thought she was such an amazing writer, he wanted to help her get her novel Wall Creeper, also about birdwatching, published. Eventually, it made it to the submission inbox at Dorothy Project. 
she sent it like into the slush pile, you know, and she sent this really hilarious submission query. And that was actually the thing that caught my eye. I mean, in general, I'm not at all one for like fancy query letters, you know, um, but she was just so legitimately funny. She wrote that she was an obscure writer of truly stunning obscurity. That was what it said. <laughs> um, and it was just, just like, Nell is incapable of writing like a boring email. Like it has never happened in all of the hundreds of times we've been, we've emailed back and forth. And it was just one of those like incurably funny things that she writes. And so I was like, okay, I have to look at this manuscript. And then, I mean, really within like two pages, I was like nauseous with how much I loved it, which is usually my sign of how I know that I want to publish a book because I feel like sick to my stomach with like love and almost like jealousy. Like, oh God, I wish I had written this. It's so good. And that's my sign. So, I mean, about two weeks after she sent it in, I said I wanted to publish it. And then... Thus commenced the hilariousness. I mean, like, her sending it to us had nothing to do with Jonathan Franzen, despite, like, the many reports. You know, she just, she actually met someone I went to grad school with in Germany, and he was like, you should send it to my friend's press. Um, she's interested in, like, chick writers or something like that. And um, so she did. And then, but I think she did start having Franzen, like, she didn't, she was totally outside the literary community, like, totally except that she knew Jonathan Franzen. So I think she started emailing, I mean, of all people, to be advising her on, like, putting together a contract with Dorothy, a publishing project, you know, like, a teeny tiny feminist press. So she would, like, ask him what he thought of, like, our terms, you know, and he would advise her. I was like, this is absurd, you know. But anyway, you know, the rest unfolds from there. Um, but since I brought him up, he was very gracious and helpful. He gave us a blurb, which I think, you know, really helped the book. He, like, sparked people's interest, especially coming from a tiny feminist press. Um, with I got to tell book. you, like, I, I bought my copy at the Barnes & Noble in Westport, Connecticut. Like, you're really wow. out there. Yeah. Well, Nell's book definitely, like, it transcended, you know, where, anywhere we'd been before. It seemed crazy as it was happening. Like, we thought this book is so good, you know, we couldn't believe no one else had taken it already, but you know, no one had, and I took it, and um, I feel like we set it up really well. Like, I feel like we did a really good job getting that book, like, the best we could possibly do with it, and we did that, and then it just sort of went off on its own, away from us, you know what I mean? And that was really cool to watch, and sort of crazy. I mean, I'd never met Nell until, like, six months after the book came out. We met on a street corner accidentally, in fact, um, in, like, Park Slope. Um, we were both in New York, and um, she came up to me to ask me for directions. And, I mean, we were going to meet in Park Slope, but we were both lost. And she was like, excuse me, do you know where, wherever we were meeting it was? And I was like, uh, you're Nell. I am Danielle. And um, she, was, she jumped up and down. She's, um, it's like a scene from one of her books. It was. It was really funny. The whole lunch was really funny. Um, yeah, she's and a very witty person. I said, like, is this crazy to you? Because at that point, like, I think Miss Wade was just coming out right then, and it seemed like she'd exploded from, like, nowhere to, like, no zinc. And um, she was like, no, it's not crazy at all. Like, you know, suddenly my life makes sense sort of thing. And I just thought it was, it was just, it was really funny to watch. From Margaret the First to Nell Zink, Danielle seems drawn to women who are working outside the boundaries of what's acceptable or recommended. As a professor, she is subtly working to teach the next generation how to be equally bold. My female students 
I've come to notice over the years, it's not uncommon for me to have like one or two per semester of female students who are incredibly smart and constantly apologize for everything they say in class or seem like really nervous to ask me like, I'm thinking about applying to an MFA and they seem embarrassed to ask that. And I've so far, I've not had a single male student exhibit those same like tendencies. And um, so one thing I guess I am, I'm trying to do is I is point this out to my students kindly and in private, you know, um, that like we don't have to apologize for being interesting or for being ambitious. Like there's not actually something wrong with that. If you're inspired to submit your manuscript to Dorothy Project or just want to buy a copy of The Wall Creeper, go to DorothyProject.com. They're also on Twitter at Dorothy Project. The Bindercast is a production of Out of the Binders, Inc., a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to advancing the careers of women and gender nonconforming writers. Follow us on Twitter at The Bindercast. For more information about Out of the Binders, go to BinderCon.com or follow us at BinderCon on Twitter. This episode was hosted by Lux Alptrom and Lee Stein and produced by Jennifer Lai. Our theme music is Ready to Go by Miss Eves and Quiche.